Well, if you asked this country's 26 million people, what is Australian food? You could probably get 26 million different answers, from Indigenous food to British staples to the cuisines brought by wave after wave of migrants. Australia's foodscape, it's diverse, complex and ever-changing. And now more than ever, we're embracing ingredients and practices derived from our local environment. So to end today's show, we're going to look at what our food says about who we are as Australians. And I'm joined by two people who understand and appreciate food much better than most of us. Pelissa Anderson, she's a first-generation farmer, a second-generation restaurateur, a writer and a TV host across networks. And Clarence Slocky is a Kanjinbara Bajalang man. He's currently the director of the Jiwa Company, which specialises in cultural landscape and green space design. And he's a presenter with ABC's Gardening Australia. Welcome to you both. Lovely to be here with you, Catherine and Clarence. Melissa, I might begin with you. Often the way that we grow up with food informs our relationship with it later in life, whether it's what's served up at the dinner each night, where you go out with friends, etc. And your mum, Amy Chanter, opened a Thai restaurant in Sydney in 1989. That grew into the well-known Chat Thai restaurant empire across the city, which you've been involved with. So what did food mean to you growing up, Pelissa? I do love this question because, <laughs> <laughs> because this, this, this question just is basically what does life mean to me? <laughs> it's mm. one and the same really. Um, we have been, I guess my family have been obsessed with um, food from, I guess for me, the moment of conception because my mum was constantly thinking about the next meal and so therefore we were always thinking about the next meal um, and and as I have grown and matured somewhat in this beautiful country, um, I now really associate food with country. Clarence, I mean, <laughs> how, how does your relationship with food today relate back to what you grew up with? Was it very much about that connection to country? Yeah, it was uh, very much in, in you know, the similar vein where the things that you take for granted as a kid, uh, you know, those those cultural aspects of your your own background, regardless of what your cultural background or your ethnicity might be. For us, it was you know spending time at the beach and you know doing the dance for the pippies and you know having a big feed of pippy rissoles or curried pippies and mm. you know, oysters and fresh fish and all the, all the seafoods. But also having grown up on a family farm, the you know those uh, modern ingredients that uh, you know growing beans and peas and corn and all of the things that people just are uh, you know, part of their, uh, their dietary staple. But you know, that, that connection to country for me is, is literally those things that we foraged and were able to eat as young fellows. Mm. What does the dance of the pippies look like? <laughs> it's, it's almost like doing the twist. You've got to you're, uh, start uh, moving the hips and getting your feet down into the sand as you uh, get down to dig the, the, the pippies out that are uh, hiding away underneath there. Mm. And well, that's a universal dance, isn't it, Clarence? That, I mean, like, I think no matter where you come from, <laughs> that is that's something we all know how, how to do. 
I think a lot of people have uh, have, have uh, done it from time to time in their life. If you live, live on the coast, that you, you know, I remember seeing people who never, you know, had no idea what we we're doing, and then uh, you know they come and join in the fun, and then you, know, you, you actually you know start to teach them a little bit about uh, what's going on, and you know don't take those little ones, don't take them all, just take enough, and everything else just goes back where it came from. Just if we can look back for a moment at Australia's history up to the present day, you mentioned migrate migrants. There, uh, Pelissa. Just how important have how important have our waves of migration been when it comes to what Australians eat? And can you pinpoint a moment or say an era when Australia started to depart from that predominantly Anglo-Celtic cuisine to a more multicultural foodscape? I think um, that you know the written written historical archives that you can research now. I mean, a lot of it up until the nineteen fifties has mostly been Anglo-Saxon, but really. I think the waves of Chinese migrants here that came um, for the mining and, you know, and then essentially found another career market gardening to feed the miners. Um, I think the first instance of Chinese restaurants started as early as the 1870s, mm. the first recorded one in, I forget, I think it was around Bathurst. Um, and and then, you know, obviously the Mediterraneans, the Italians, the Greeks, the Lebanese. Um, I, and that's what's brought that rich history of all these ingredients that we now see. Um, and that is part of the common pantry of most Australians, most modern Australians, whether you're from Thailand or you're, you know, Japanese or Greek or Italian or um Tunisian or whatever, I think you have, you know, everyone has a, a great understanding of what miso is mm. or what, you know, um, uh, ketchup manis or fish sauce. Mm. And and I think we as a nation is definitely richer for it and our food is richer for it. Uh, Clarence, we know that food history here goes back 65,000 years. We know that Indigenous Australians actively uh, were involved in sophisticated agriculture, aquaculture practices with respect to land use and, and security. Just how important is food to the Indigenous culture? Well, I think to to any First Nations people, it's intrinsically linked to who you are. And you know, for us, you know, our totemic systems and the link to our ancestral spirits is is through the environment. And you know, part of that is the you know the plants and the animals and all all of the things that rely on each other to be able to survive. So, you know, the the food aspect of it, you know, and particularly when I go to remote communities and you know, the aunties will always ask the plant if you know they can take something from it. It's it's just a beautiful thing. Mm. So, I mean, you've spent years developing a knowledge of Indigenous bush food and these agricultural practices. Can you tell us about their uses, their importance? And and do you think now Indigenous food is getting the recognition in the mainstream that it's been deserving of for, for a long time? Oh, look, I think so. A lot of, lot of things have been around, you know, uh, Seafood, in particular, you know, people have been eating that for thousands of years, and it's always been part of the uh, the staple for um, you know for Australia. You know, sadly, when the uh, the, the, the first fleet arrived, they uh, there was so much abundance that they they just caught things because they could, and just thought, oh, "How good is this?" You know, mm-hmm. the two thousand fish at a time. So, but, you know, all the local mob were like, "Why are you doing that? There's no point to it." Mm-hmm. You know, so these are the sort of sort of uh, things that that have became a little bit of a conflict you know, along with so many other things but you know that that concept of 
sophisticated agriculture where you know you're not doing monoculture you're you're enhancing the environment so you know the things like yam daisies or even rainforest plums from where where i'm at you know making sure that there's enough left on the on the plant so Mm. that the birds can eat them and pass them and then you know drop their little nutrient packs for the seed to germinate and you have more and you know for the next generation generations to come that's the that's the kind of thing that ties the food and and the food culture to you know who we are as a people and mm-hmm. i guess one of the oldest things that people are familiar with would be damper you know that's been eaten and used by aboriginal people you know we we predate the egyptians in making bread we just mm. didn't have yeast Mm-hmm. And it's that idea of regenerative farming practices, Pelissa, I know that you um, employ at the Boone Luck Farm. But Clarence, I was really interested in a quote that you said in an interview last year. You said the interest in native ingredients is in some ways a double-edged sword because you say the benefits aren't being passed on to Indigenous communities and issues around cultural and intellectual property rights aren't either. Can you explain that a little bit? Um, yeah, look, I guess from a purely food perspective, it, it's great that there's a, you know an interest, but the the supply can't match the demand at the moment. Um, and you know some of the foods have to be wild sourced, and you know that um, leads to exploitation and um, overuse. And then you know, as I said, that the the cultural practices aren't met, the the you know, the respect and the protocols, and of course the, the monetary benefit to communities isn't happening so that's the double-edged sword element to it but it's you know getting the awareness out there there are a lot of people who are becoming way more aware of food sovereignty for example but Mm -hmm. you know making sure that the the protocols are followed but also that the 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 credit where credit's due and the financial benefit to those communities who are giving up part of their, you know, their, their, literally their, their cultural sovereignty. Mm. I mean, why has that demand suddenly spiked? Are restaurateurs really now alive to native ingredients? Yeah, look, I think you know, part of it is that a lot of our native ingredients have, haven't been, you know, haven't had the benefit of hundreds of years of development and, and breeding to for specific traits. They're, they're, they're wild and they're, they are pure species and there's really intense flavours that you can gather from them. Mm. So I'll put this to both of you. I mean, you're speaking at the uh, Vivid Talks about, you know, what is Australian food? Pelissa, can you boil it down or sum it up? What would you say (laughs) is Australian food in 2022? Oh, man, this is such a a difficult question because you ask 10 different people and you'll get 10 different answers. Mm. But um, to me um, and you know, to anyone who lives on the land and um, stewards country, I think for me food is, is really country. It's, it should be locality. It should be eating in seasons. Um, and I think that is becoming a lot more apparent to many, many people um, in this beautiful country of ours. I think, you know, um, we have such an, a rich history of migration and um, intertwining of different cuisines. I hate to call it fusion, but um, it is a fusion, poly- cross-pollination of mm. sorts. Mm. Um, and I think that's that's what we see now. Well, it's been lovely talking to you both. I very much look forward to uh, joining in the pippy dance if I see one at the beach when I'm next down there. <laughs> Thank you both so much. No problem. 
And that was Pelissa Anderson and Clarence Slocky. They'll be on a panel discussion later today titled How Food Shapes Australia at the Australian National Maritime Museum. Now, that's part of Vivid Sydney. And I don't think I'll mind going out and seeking a rainforest plum. That sounded delicious that Clarence mentioned there next time I'm out shopping. You've also been sharing some of your food stories as well. One listener has written in, when we arrived from Europe in the 1950s, there were two types of cheese in the shops, Velveeta and Yellow Block. I haven't heard of those. I'll go and have a look for those as well. Well, thanks so much to the Saturday Extra team, Sky Doherty, Belinda Summer and Nick Baker. And if you happen to miss any of our earlier interviews, you can, of course, head to the Saturday Extra website to catch up. We had a couple of really interesting uh, conversations across the hour and a half, but one in particular with Bob Brunig about tax planning and how the ATO is cracking down on family trusts that may fall into a bit of a grey area. Well, I'm Catherine Robinson sitting in for Geraldine Duke for the next couple of weeks. She's whooping it up in Europe, the lucky duck. Thanks so much for your company. Now it's time for Jonathan Green with Blueprint for Living. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.